Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. My great-grandmother is the one who babysat me when I was small, and her name was Nellie Thomas. She was born in 1910. Her hardness carried over to um, her children, her grandchildren, her great-grands. Like, white people cannot be trusted. You know, they're they're mean, they're, they're bad people, they're nothing but trouble. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series. I am Jessica Hankin. And I'm Laura Wexler. And this week on the Stoop Podcast, we are continuing our Return to the Stoop series in which we feature a memorable Stoop story and explore various fascinating questions with the storyteller of that memorable Stoop story. But before we get started, we want to thank the Park School of Baltimore, an independent K-12 co-ed school in North Baltimore. So um, our person that we are featuring, our amazing person that we are featuring this week is none other than David Ross, who we have had the honor and pleasure of knowing um, since really the early days of the stoop. David, you are a social worker, um, violence intervention specialist with shock trauma. You are also incredibly uh, poetic, spoken word artist, uh, your father, uh, husband, and you're continuing somehow to be creative while having four kids, which I think- During a pandemic. Yeah. He didn't didn't actually have all four kids during the pandemic, but he had four kids in his house during the pandemic. Uh, Which is insane. So. Yeah, it's insane. It is. <laughs> I'm taking well, care of my niece uh, this this summer too. So, five oh my kids. god! <laughs> well, when we in the early days of this soup, we had um, you and Femi the Dryfish on, and mm-hmm. um, you guys, you were just saying that you guys are back back together and still doing mm-hmm. music. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what's going on with you guys and your music these days? Yeah, definitely. And I, I just want to thank you both for giving us opportunities to perform and, and to share your audience with us, your space. So we appreciate that from way, wow. way back. Um, so it's always a pleasure and it always feels great when we come back to do things with you. Uh, what we're doing right now, um, we just released the EP called uh, Black Body. And it's five songs that um, uh, we just talk about dis- different issues um, with um, Black men some of the things that we experience personally um, and socially. And uh, the messed up thing, or the funny thing is like, we didn't know a pandemic was coming, but we released it like right before the pandemic. So we couldn't go out and perform it or anything like that, but it is available for streaming on all platforms. So, okay, um, yeah. And it's, so it's, it's Black Body, it's an EP, and you guys record under the fifth L. So that's how people can L. find it, right? Yeah. The letter okay. L, yes. Okay, cool. So we're going to play this story that um, you shared 20 years ago. So you were (laughs) then 21 years old. Sorry, 10 years ago. What am I saying? 20 years ago. Oh my God. Oh my God. I know. Well, every month in the pandemic is a year otherwise. But anyway, okay. 10 years ago, you shared this at a show we did. And um, so we're going to listen to that story 
and then chat afterwards. All right. Cool. So this is David right. Ross sharing a story in 2010. I was born in 1979. Wow. Yeah. I know. Old, right? But um, when I was born, I, I grew up in a house. Um, my mother was really young. My mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother. I'm the only guy in this house with these women. And my great-grandmother uh, is the one who babysat me um, when I was small. And her name was Nellie Thomas. She was born in 1910. And she was really dark, rich, dark complexion, tough, hard as nails on the outside um, due to her childhood. Um, she, her mother died when she was young. And she had to drop out of school in eighth grade, and she cleaned white people's homes. And she was really hard because of her experiences. She was mistreated really bad, especially because she was dark-skinned. So it, her, her hardness carried over to um, her children, her grandchildren, her great-grands. Like, you know, white people cannot be trusted. You know, uh, you know, they're, they're mean, they're, they're bad people, they're nothing but trouble. And in 1985, I was about five years old, and she would keep me, and she would have people that come over the house all the time. Like, they were, uh, I mean, she was the sweetest person on the inside because she had tons of friends, and these were people who would come over the house and visit her throughout the day. And us, the children, we were to be seen and not heard, but we still heard things. And I heard a, a lot of adult conversations, and sometimes they were about race and about you know, what she experienced growing up and how black men, you know, the black men in the family weren't, we weren't supposed to date white women. It's nothing but trouble and all of these things. And even though in 85 and 86, around that time, I didn't understand what they were talking about because I've never met a white person before at that time. But some of my heroes were white men. T.J. Hooker, <laughs> Bo and Luke, you know, and most of all, Michael Knight, um, <laughs> who I just knew I was going to be when I grew up, you know what I'm saying? I wanted to be Michael Knight. And uh, so I just didn't understand. I was like, these are all great people, you know. But that seed was still planted in the back of my head, even though I didn't know what they were talking about. And we lived in a little house on the Alameda and Argonne Drive up on the hill. Uh, my grandmother called it the hill. And uh, the, the old Northwood Neighborhood Association, and she even showed me in her deed, you know, there was just a line drawn through it, you know, no colors allowed kind of thing. You know, so these, these things were kind of planning in my head. So fast forward a few years, my family, we go to a beach, we take a trip to Cadora uh, Beach in Pennsylvania. And uh, it's a predominantly white beach, you know, and me being all imaginative, I just kind of run off and do my own thing, the family is, is over there, and I just leave them, I run off, and I find this little playground, and I see a, a little white girl on a swing, so I go sit next to her, and we're on the swings, and I mean, we were going high up in the air, and our giggles are just filling the sky, and we're having a good old time seeing who can go to highest, and then out of the blue, her mother just comes, I mean, stomping through the sand, like puffs of sand just coming up through her sandals, like dust balls, you know, around... And I'm just looking at her like, oh, my God, what's about to happen? And she snatches her daughter off the swing. And she said, I thought I told you I didn't want you playing with no niggas. And they leave. And I stop kicking. My swing slows to a stop. And I'm just kind of sitting there. And I'm not angry. I don't know what to feel. I didn't feel anything, I guess. I don't know. A whole bunch of things just going on in my head. So I'm just sitting there in silence to myself. And I never told my family about it. But a few years again passed by, and um, 
it's like after that incident, Pandora's box opened. You know, it was like a domino effect. I'm experiencing all types of racial issues and conflicts. You know, uh, you know, I went to Roland Park Middle School, great school. You know, and some of the people in that area showed that you know they didn't like me being there. You know, so all of these things were happening, run-ins with cops, and I just it was like my eyes were open after after this this one incident. And, you know, I realized then that how segregated Baltimore was, you know, it was like white block, black block, white block, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, I, I kind of realized that, you know, I, I think I started to think, you know, like my great grandmother was right. Like I should probably listen to what she was saying. All those things were kind of re- coming back to me. And so I got to high school, went to Mergenthaler, and I had a, a uh, a teacher named Miss Russo who taught uh, American government. And by this time, I'm like super black power, like American government, African government, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, <laughs> I don't care about nothing, the cops, whatever, whatever, you know. But this woman was so sweet, so sweet. And I loved her. Even to this day, if I saw her, you know, like she was one of my greatest influences. But at the time, I'm in the ninth grade and I'm thinking, like, okay, after everything I experienced, how can she be this sweet? You know, it's got to be something. You know, this has to be some type of racist thing underneath that she is not showing me. So I decided to test her one day. And I don't know what made me think, you know, that she would divulge, even if she was a racist, like she would, if I tested her, she would just come out and be like, you know, tell her this story about her being, you know, this great plan she has to destroy the black race through... (laughs) You know, her kind heart and Rice Krispie treats, you know. <laughs> but uh, she was just the sweetest person, and I loved her, and I, and I still felt guarded. Like, I'm like, okay, well, I can't completely trust her. So after school one day, I stayed after like I usually would and helped out. And we had a little club we put together called the Hope Club, helping other people excel. And we would go to places like the Kennedy Krieger Institute and help our kids and do things like that. And I stayed after one day, and the rest of the kids left. And I was like, okay, this is the perfect moment. Like, I want to test her to see if she's really a racist, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I uh, was cleaning the boards, and somehow we started talking about culture and, and things like that. And uh, I made a, a, a racial joke against Asian Americans. And I was like, okay, if she laughs with me, if she laughs, she's a racist, you know. Or if she, if she comments, you know, if she... she uh, uh, sides with me on this, like, you know, that means she's a racist and I can't trust her, you know, so I decide to do this and I make this comment and everything stops, her face just is red as a beat and she's like, David, don't you ever in your life say anything like that again, and I lost my breath and I'm, I'm like, you know, and she's like, they're Asian Americans, you know, and, I'm just, and I just didn't know what to say, I was just dumbfounded, I felt so stupid for even saying it, for, <clears throat> for, or for trying to test her. And I was like, man, she's really the person that she portrays herself to be. And I just couldn't believe it. You know, my whole, my whole logic was just thrown out of the window, you know. And it was at that moment that um, I just started to think, like, you know, it takes a little bit more work to uh, give everyone their, their own file in your brain you know, instead of just putting these huge office labels on, on people, you know. And um, 
and you know I had to uh, learn to accept her you know as a as a you know just accept the fact that people are individuals and we need to give folks that chance you know to be who they are you know and it was since that moment uh, it really opened me up and you know I got to meet a lot of friends you know from different places who are my best friends to this day because of that experience so thank you Mr. Russo. Okay, so before we get into discussing this amazing story, we want to thank two other podcast sponsors. They are Golden West Restaurant, which is on the Avenue in Hamden. It's a vegan, southwestern, um, great restaurant, family restaurant, great brunch, um, great late night window. Um, support them during the pandemic. They are keeping going um, and and doing great and Baltimore Magazine uh, which you can find on the newsstand or baltimoremagazine.com and they have terrific stories about Baltimore um, but also events and all sorts of um, happenings and whatnot so check them out uh, Baltimore Magazine. So okay. this is a story from, I mean, my favorite type of story, which is like a um, story told by an incredibly kind, smart person. Insightful. Yeah. Who's insightful and, po oh, and the you. poetic. So I just, there are little moments that are, I can see so vividly, um, like the mother's feet stomping through the sand. Yes. That moment. With dust clouds. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. What do you remember? about what it was like to share the story that night? Well, um, what I remember, I was incredibly nervous. Um, it felt vulnerable, exposing, because I never told the story before. And so I'm glad I had you guys to, like, to coach us through that, that process. Even being a performer and everything, like, I, it was still a different space to be in. So it just felt very vulnerable and open and I was just nervous. I didn't really, I wasn't really sure, you know, how I it think, was going to be. I think you said in the story that you didn't tell anybody about what happened on, right. on the swings with that. So that was, you had still, even to the time that you were sharing the story at what, age 31, you right. still hadn't told your family about that or had you eventually? Nope, never did. Oh were my any, God. Were there any family members there that night? No. Prior to that, I was, I mean, I imagine so that was fairly insulated and protected. So uh, I spent a lot of time in church, grew up in church. We learned about, you know, God and Jesus. And we learned about, and, you know, the women in my family, I was surrounded by women. So they were very protective. So just being out in that incident on my own, really kind of for the first time where I ventured away, this is one of the first encounters I've had without my family being around. So um, it was just, I, I guess, just a, a, a very interesting moment to, to have experienced. Well, and I was thinking about your great-grandmother, Nellie Thomas, who was born mm -hmm. in 1910. So mm -hmm. is she still, I mean, it would be unusual if he was still alive. When did she die? <laughs> she died, oh man, what year was that? Um, I want to say it was 1996 or 1997. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
I thought about her with regard to what's going on now and like how yeah. she would view it or understand it or articulate it, you know? Yeah. I'm not sure. I think that she would even be a different person. You know, the, the longer we live, you know, we experience things that we, we grow. And I think even in, as an elder and older age, um, if you allow yourself to, um, experience, um, you know, what's going on in the news, culturally, socially, you know, you will evolve. So I, I think that, I would like to think that she uh, would think differently a little bit, yeah. especially with grands and great-grands and them informing her of, no, Grandma, this is what's new. This is what we do. You know, this is what you say, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's what I would like to say. But you, at the same time, I think you do a really good job of honoring honoring her experience and who she was um, and truly just empathizing with why she had such a really firm line about white people because in her experience she had only had negative interactions. And mind you these aren't first-hand stories these are things she didn't really talk about so and she certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have spoken to a child about it but I was overhearing yeah. Conversations yeah. Um, when I was that age. And um, these are secondhand account stories that about her life, you know, with her mother um, being an ex slave and um, her mother dying. Like I heard about these stories um, about her. But even when she was alive, it, I, I'm assuming it was just too painful for her to discuss, you know, like to hand down like certain stories of wisdom. And, you know, I guess in some ways, um, I inherited that kind of idea and because I haven't spoken to my children about any of these things. I think it's just fortunate that it's recorded now, you know, thanks to, thanks to you guys. But these are conversations that I would like consciously like have, have with my children, I don't think. Really? Why not? Um, you know, you just kind of file things away. And, and you just don't want to forget about it. Like re-listening to the story again, it just made, it, it reminded me of um, how vulnerable of a place it is. Yeah. Um, and, and not only with that incident when I was a kid, but also the sweet moments that I had with Ms. Russo um, yeah. as a teacher, like both of those were, you know, they were so soft spots. Like I, I got a little teary eyed listening to it again. And, also cringe because I hate hearing myself, <laughs> but um, so it's kind of hard to go back and listen to it. But um, it's just kind of a, a reminder of that. So I don't know when there's an opportunity to really proactively have those type of discussions with my children. Um, I'd rather, you know, they have a pretty posh life right now. So <laughs> I, keep, I keep them you know I don't know you know and I'm saying I'm not saying that I'm right or wrong for it but it's, it's kind of just how it is and you saying that to me and me, me sharing with you um it just made me realize it in this moment like wow you know my grandmother or my great-grandma they didn't have these discussions with me either and yeah here I, I you know and I'm not doing it you know so yeah um, I mean it's, it's so interesting yeah. yeah, it's really interesting as a parent, like, what what do you want to pass on? Like, what are the stories you want to pass on? What, like, what are the stories that you avoid sharing because they're complicated or painful? I mean, this, you know, the the 
sort of second half of the story when you're, you know, strategically creating this test um, of Miss Russo, like I find that so moving um, because it's 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 literally like your personal experience with this particular, you know, your personal experience as an individual with this other individual teacher who happens to be white. Uh, coming up against a whole body of knowledge that you've taken to be true and like you're lord my dog um i love you like wrestling with that you're wrestling with it and i feel like so many people would be like well maybe she's nice but she's white so i'm gonna move on because i know that's true but you like you created this, albeit like really screwy test. Oh, well, he was in ninth grade. Ninth graders. I know. I love it. I love it. It's like at once, it is at once like so wise and so naive at the same time. Right. Like right. that, so authentically ninth grade, you know, for a thinking mm -hmm. boy. Like, you're, so you're trying to figure out like what is true? What is true? You know, and it, and, and it didn't all happen in like in one instance, right? It wasn't overnight, like, oh, I met, you know, this wonderful white person there yeah. as well. It, <laughs> oh, it, but, <laughs> but it, 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 it started something in my mind of, of how, of thinking of like really taking the time and the energy to assess and to measure someone, the individual. And I think that's really what it was about, like not grouping people together. Yeah, there's certain things they may, characteristics that may be shared, maybe. But even with that, like it's, it's to really give attention and to the individual um, to to make note of their their worth that they bring to this world, that person. And that's much harder to do. It's much easier yeah. to label, you know. And, yeah. and we we kind of. Um, biologically you know our, our brains brains yeah just, that's the go-to and it helps yeah. us in a lot of ways it's efficient. You know? yeah 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 it helps in a lot of ways but um to try to try to dig a little deeper and to give everyone that that courtesy of benefit of it out to just you know measure them by who they are and it takes time to do that it takes energy to do that would you, um, I, and I think I, I think I asked you this 10 years ago, but do you think that Miss Russo has heard this story or have you had any connection with her? Oh, so that's a, the interesting thing. So after that story, um, someone was at the show who knew her and they got in contact with her. I think either they emailed me or Facebook messaged me and they said, I know Miss Russo, her name is Bonnie. I know Bonnie, like, and she worked, they told me what school she works at now, and they told her about the story. And we got in contact again. And I, um, I was supposed to have went over to the school that she was working at that time for us to catch up again, and I never made it over there. So I didn't get to see her, but we did speak on the phone and, um, by way of email. And I mean, even, even to this day, I don't know where she is now, but I would love to see her again for us to get up and chat. Yeah, we, we did get in touch after that, not long after that. That's well, yeah, I mean, I also love in this story that you just sort of offhandedly mentioned that you had started this club, Hope Club, um, mm -hmm. and that feels like such a part of who you are is like 
wanting to do something to like lift up other people. And I feel like that you're still doing that, you know? Yeah. Uh, and you know, we don't really realize and even in those earlier years, these little um, seeds that get planted, you know? And so like Ms. Ms. Rousseau, she, she was like our advisor. So she helped us to develop this club, the Hope Club. We would go out to places like uh, the Kennedy Krieger Institute. We would, um, like around Christmas time, we would go sing Christmas carols to the kids. We would give out food. We would try to encourage um, our other classmates and you know members of the school. So I didn't know at that time, but again, that, that was those were the beginnings of me being on, on a path of just taking a deeper interest in people and having empathy. Do yeah. you think also the fact that you were raised, and, I'm, and this is not a dig on men, but that you were raised in, in what was essentially like a, a feminine household, do you think that that played any role in your worldview? I imagine so. I mean, that's all I know, so I, I can't say one way or the other, but I think that it definitely had a, a tremendous influence on me and, and how I think. I'm, I feel like I'm pretty as much as I can be balanced between masculine and feminine energy just by kind of, because that's what, how I was raised, you know? So I do think it has a tremendous influence in, in how I think about things. This moment is such a polarizing moment, right? Like people mm -hmm. are at the extreme ends or gravitating toward the extreme, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's just, and you're not, like you're like you're saying you're a person who like has made it his life's work to see things to see people as individuals to see things from different points of view like what is it like for you to be in this moment and like have you felt that you've had like you've been pushed more one way like or another or and what has it been like to be the parent of black children in this moment because then how are you talking about are you out in the streets or like what tell us a little bit about that if you if you wouldn't mind yeah I, I mean I think it's very complex and in my mind for myself I'm always pendulating between like these different thoughts and feelings but you know so um yeah you know I mean for the first question you asked like Yes, that's my, my everyday mission. And I think about it like, okay, I want to, but I have to consciously think about like seeing someone as, a, as an individual. If I'm on the streets, you know, your mind just, you know, like, oh, look at them. Let me cross the street. It might be a killer. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but to, to, and, and I, I've, you know, because I still have those moments, you know, but to consciously think about that and try to train myself to think about it differently, periodically I have situations that, humbles me and takes me back to the center of what I want to become. Um, there was a time, Simi and I, uh, we did a show for, um, I think it was the city government, and we went to perform, and they had another group there performing. It was these two guys, they were black guys. Um, everyone, including Simi and I, we were dressed in suits. We were dressed up what you might say is appropriate for the event. And um, even though we were performing, but these two guys, they were dressed in jeans, t-shirts, they had gold chains, they even had tattoos, they looked a little rough, and we were like, what are they doing here? This is what we're seeing each other, why, 
what in the, what this is about to be a catastrophe. This is not going to go well. These guys are like thugs. This is what we're thinking. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, when it was their time to perform, they got up. Oh my God, just Laura. They sounded like birds. They sang so beautifully. Oh. So beautifully, like, and I I I felt bad to myself. Like, what? How how would I automatically just judge these guys? I didn't know them. And after the event, you know, we each congratulated each other. They told us how well they thought we did. We said the same to them. And I didn't share them what my original thought with them, what my original thoughts were. But we were embarrassed to ourselves. Yeah. You know, to have this, I don't know, uppity kind of like, yeah. you know. Yeah, judgment. Feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So moments like that, they they happen often enough just to remind me. They're like they're reminders to me to be, you know, to always have humility and, and to um, try, at least attempt to judge people off the merit of just who, who they are as individuals. Yeah. And what about, like, what about your kids? How are you talking with oh. them about, like, Black Lives Matter and about, like, police violence here in Baltimore and everywhere? Like, yeah. So, you know, to be honest, I don't, I, I still don't even have those conversations with them. But they are very much aware. They watch the news when they have yeah. questions. Um, I answer the questions. My oldest son, I did have to have a conversation with him a few times because, and this was maybe about, I want to say three or four years ago. Up until that point, I never really had a conversation with him about police, but my wife's uh, dad was in hospice care and we went to go um, visit him. And there was a police, and he wanted to get, um, he, he asked for something to drink. So we told him that, you know, where the, the we told him where to go, to go to the um, vending machines to go get something to drink. And he went, and I wasn't there, my wife just told me the story. He went to go get something to drink, but he saw a police officer, so he didn't get it. He came back. He was scared. And we never had a conversation. What made him afraid of the police? And we never talked about the police. I never told him any of my experiences with the police. And yet he's afraid of someone who is, you know, essentially there to be helpful. So where did he get this idea from? They should be afraid. And so and I how, had this conversation. How old is yeah. he again, David? I'm sorry to interrupt. But he's 13 yeah. now, but you're yeah. saying he was like 9 or 10? Yep. Okay. Yeah. That, that was just kind of wild to me, thinking that I'm shielding them. Like, I have incredible anxiety, especially when it comes to my children. Like, I'm always worried about them. And so I, I try to protect them from, from certain things. And I'm not even saying that to say that that's the right way. It's just kind of what I've been doing. Yeah. And yeah. Um, just to, to, to protect them. And yet, he still has the fear. experience, a fear. Yeah, where did that come from? Yeah. You know, so... Um, you know, that was the first time after that happened that I sat down and had a conversation with him. And I told him that um, based off of the, the same thing that I'm telling you about trying to see people as individuals, because people are not their jobs, you know, people are people. So if you're, you're Brian, Brian just happens to be a police officer, you know, or yeah. You know, Brian happens to be a teacher or, you know, whatever their job is, that's what they happen to do. But they, that's not really, it's an illusion, but it's not really who you are. 
that's what you yeah. do because I yeah. can change at any time, you know, where you're not actively doing that, that whatever that is. Um, so to let him know that, you know, you don't, we, we don't know, you know, unless we have an encounter with these folks and just try to make the best of it. But all of the things that they're telling black boys and black men to do in situations like that, particularly when it comes to police that, you know, how you should behave so you won't die or get killed. I feel like it's a little over the top because even with that, if the onus is not on you to not get killed in, in a yeah. sense. So yeah. I don't really teach him those things, but um, I also leave enough room for him to make his own decisions. I just want to see what he thinks about it. So I listen more than I, more than I talk, you know, with yeah. him. I'll ask questions. I, I want to know what he's thinking and just maybe provide some guidance with that. But um, he's, he's, he's pretty solid. You know, he's, he's very intuitive. He's sharp. I'm just hoping that he has better experiences than I've had. I feel optimistic, really, even in this area, era about it going that way, where it'll really truly be a distant memory when it comes to racism and well, you are an optimist, wouldn't you agree? I mean, this, this is the story of an optimist. You know, I'm strangely kind of both. That's why I say it's complex because I am optimistic, but I'm I'm also a pessimist. I'm also cynical. I'm all of these. <laughs> You're an optimist with an anxiety disorder. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like great things are ahead, but I ex I know that what could still happen. So it could definitely happen, but. <laughs> um, well I just love I'm so it's so good to talk to you and I just so love this story I I love that it's out there in the world I love how how true it feels and just mm -hmm. how you know you talked about feeling really vulnerable when you shared it and I feel like it's challenging to experience that but the the upside of that and and the real benefit of that is how emotionally open you are in the story and what what a sort of a pleasure and a, um just a an experience that allows us to have you know well wow. wow. thank you for the for the opportunity i, I truly appreciate it i I listened to the story again today for the first time in 10 years, and uh, I think that's one of the things that kind of made me emotional about it, because even at 31, I'm listening to it at 41, even at 31, I'm listening to it, I could still hear little David. In there. Yeah, so, yeah. That was crazy to me, like, I was yeah. listening to it today, and I, I don't think I would have heard it 10 years ago, but that's what I heard today, and I was like, wow. You know, it moves me. Yeah. So you, it, your kids haven't heard this story. No, they haven't. Well, if you ever share it with them, I would love to hear what what they think. And I mean, of course, I would say you should share it with them. It's so <laughs> beautiful, and it's uh, thank it's you. yeah. But anyway, yes, thank you so mm -hmm. much. And I might do I'm that so, this week. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well. We're, report back if you okay. if you do <laughs> and we um we look forward to when we can all come back again in person and, God, and we, we can work together with you again. show yes can i ask you a question i really never liked me like who the hell said i got to like you
my responsibility. A man is supposed Before to... Before we end this episode, we want to thank The Wine Source, which has been a great supporter of the Stoop podcast. You can find them on Elm Avenue in Hamden, and they will take care of anything you need in the way of food and drink during the pandemic and also when we ever get out of this um and we want to thank maureen harvey the producer of the soup podcast check us out on apple podcasts or soupstorytelling.com we would love to have you otherwise we will see you back here in two weeks thanks a lot take care thank you thank you david thank you love you guys no why no why just like a walk home just like right you ain't shit i ain't shit repeat cycle now i'm looking at my